typical summer weather in the in the northeast sure you know, hot humid uh, and you're in the same clothes for several days that, that have gotten drenched from the rain and then you got sweaty then you got drenched again uh, mud sometimes up to your ankles uh, no food so it, it was tough Good morning, afternoon, evening, I don't know, good whatever it is, wherever you are. This is Ear Fuel, episode number five, and as always, I am your host, Joel Freemark. You can follow me over on Twitter at Get Ear Fuel and at The Daily Guru, and hey, you can also find the podcast on iTunes as well as SoundCloud.com slash Get Ear Fuel. What you heard at the top was a bit of my interview with, that's right, my dad. The man was at Woodstock and many other amazing concerts. The guy has a lot to talk about. We will get to that conversation a bit later on. First up, though, a number of new albums came out in the last week or so, and I want to focus on two of them. The first record I want to talk about today was a very pleasant surprise, and it's the brand new album from Talib Kualib. This one dropped out of nowhere a few days ago, and he posted it in a pay-what-you-want style format, which really makes the album title of Fuck the Money perfectly fitting. Before we get to the actual music, though, I have some serious gripes with the downloadable MP3s that you get upon purchase of this album, regardless of how much you pay for it. Look, it's 2015. Anyone releasing digitally should know how to do ID3 tagging correctly. The fact that the album title, the artist name, and a few other fields were pure chaos, it's just amateurish, and he is way better than that. Take 30 seconds and get it right next time. That out of the way, I cannot thank Talib enough for leaving Autotune off of this album. It's not that he's been prone to using it or anything, but over the last few years, we've seen everybody and their mothers rhyming with aggravating levels of voice modulation. I mean, we were just talking about it the other week when we were talking about the new Dr. Dre record. It's nice to hear someone sticking to their guns and understanding that you don't need to give in to that trend to make good music and sell records. You just don't. The rhymes on this record are, to put it mildly, outrageously good. From lines like, when you chase what you want, you run past what you need, to his brutal assault of the current internet trending hip-hop culture, taking on police brutality, every single song brings a new thought process, but there's that same fantastic level of intensity on every track. Also, these tracks really prove that you don't need to be loud to be powerful, both in hip-hop and in heavy metal. People think that you need to turn everything up or scream to have impact. I mean, you can't ignore these rhymes, and yet each word is really clear, concise, and hits the mark on target. A lot of people can learn a lot from that idea. There's so much old-school cool on this, and tracks like The Venetian represent it better than any other. You also have like head-bobbing tracks like Butterfly. There's really great sonic diversity going on here. However, I will say it's not all hits and good times. There are a number of misses, as the title track to me was a mess sonically, and it also has that annoyingly unnecessary outro. I don't know why it was put on there, but it's just a horrible choice. The song Echoes is subpar comparatively to the rest of the album, and the song Fall Back has solid verses, but it really falls short musically. There's a core of like three or four songs in a row that you're just like, eh, these, these just aren't as good as the rest here. For me, though, it's the track Money Good that absolutely steals the show, and on a record full of exceptional performances, this one for me really left the others in the dust. The fact that Tlaib released this basically for free, though, that's a testament to his character and how he sees hip-hop culture and musical culture moving. He could have easily made a financial killing here, but kind of said, screw it. Here, if you want it, come and get it. 
granted, smaller bands can't really do that because nobody will pay for the record. But, you know, Radiohead proved it a number of years ago with In Rainbows, I think it was, that if you're an established act, you can get away with doing this and you'll still make some money. So hats off to him for that. Along with that, though, this is another solid entry into what's becoming one of the best hip hop years ever. There have been so many just phenomenal releases this year, and this record will still definitely be being talked about at the end of the year. The other album I want to look at is called Emotion, and it's the new one from, that's right, Carly Rae Jepsen. Yes, we are going to review pop records here as well. If you're one of those people who like to write off all of pop music, everything pop music, my apologies for being on your lawn. I'm not going anywhere. Anyway, one of the main reasons Call Me Maybe was such a can't-get-away-from-it hit was because Carly can sing really well. She just, you know, you don't have to work her voice too much with pitch correction and stuff. And her producers managed to walk that line between bubblegum sweetness and a really solid hook. Now, if you called her a one-hit wonder, it would be hard to argue that point. She did have other singles chart from that album, but really nothing matched Call Me Maybe. But let's be honest... We're in a bit of a one-hit wonder era. You know, a lot of people call it that, you know, everybody wants to make a single, nobody's making an album. This is an example of that, so you really can't falter. Anyway, though, on to the album. And what we have here is a rather laid-back, not-so-in-your-face pop record. It flows pretty well, and I enjoyed the fact that it wasn't really aggressive and in-your-face because a lot of pop musicians have been doing that lately. Uh, Ariana Grande's new record was like that. Yes, I listened to it. And uh, a number of other things. I I just like that this was a little bit more uh, relaxed. The title track is one of my favorites. It's got this good 80s tinge to it, and it shares many of the same characteristics as the first single, I Really Like You, which, if you can get past the fact of what she did with the video, it was, eh, it was just made to get attention. But it's not a terrible song, and it, it was made for a specific audience, and it was made very well for that specific audience. The most intriguing song on this album, though, is called Boy Problems. It opens up like Paula Abdul's Forever Your Girl, hop into the Wayback Machine, but then it drops this very, very cool bass line that almost gives it a disco tech sound. There are these undertones, the bass line that's like, it's reminiscent of Daft Punk's Get Lucky. I could not get that out of my head. And if they don't release this song as a single, they've missed how good a track they have here. You definitely want to check this song out. Sadly, though... The rest of the album is plagued with a range of problems from the annoyingly endless Making the Most of the Night to the 80s sitcom theme song Let's Get Lost to the outright mess that is When I Needed You. The album also has this trend of these soft, open builds at the beginning of the song that go to this really attempted monumental pop moment where it just kind of crescendos and explodes. But you see, when you do that once or twice on an album, it's cool. It's it it works. But when you do it on almost every single song, it just becomes tired and it and it almost becomes kitsch. It just it, it really detracted from this. There's also the song All That, uh, which is the ideal soundtrack for all you junior high kids. This is the ideal soundtrack for the junior high dance, slow jam, awkward boner time. So if you're in that sort of a point in your life, this is the track you want. So yeah, there are a few very good moments on this album. Uh, if you're into pop music, you should definitely check it out. But overall, the record beats a number of dead horses so badly that your ears are going to bleed in their honor. So with that all out of the way, my life, to get personal for a minute, has been filled with amazing music since day one. I've been very fortunate. Everything from classical to jazz to rock to edgier sounds to really, you know, some oddball stuff too. Over the years, I got more into punk rock and hip-hop and everything else, but one of the main people in encouraging me to dig deeper into music was my dad. Before I was 10, he had taken me to see bands like The Grateful Dead, P-Funk, The Rolling Stones, Paul Simon, Santana, The Beach Boys, 
tons of times going to the orchestra, countless others. As he himself saw some of in his day, some of the greatest concerts ever, he spent his formative years in New York City, and uh, I've gotten many, many awesome stories over the years. Now, the other week, it was the anniversary of Woodstock. The only real Woodstock. Woodstock 99 does not count, nor does Woodstock 94. We're talking about Woodstock, August 1969. And I wanted to talk about his firsthand experiences with him because there were a lot of questions I'd never asked. And the guy has some really cool stories because he planned on going to Woodstock. He had tickets to go to Woodstock. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about that. Now, seeing as he's all the way out in Cleveland and I'm here in New York City, we linked up via Skype. Now, I only qualify that because there's a bit of digital noise here and there. We all know the pleasures of long Skype calls and what can happen there. So uh, my apologies for that. So uh, grab your matches and flip flops. It's time to talk about one of the greatest concerts ever with none other than my dad. I noticed actually, because um, I was going to say I was going to kind of go with an you know thing like, hey, forty six years ago. By the way, it was forty six years. Um, forty six yeah, years, yeah, forty six years ago. You were listening to whatever, but I noticed that nobody played. It looks like from two a.m. until twelve fifteen. Um, in case you're wondering, Joan Baez went off stage at two a.m. because I'm sure everybody was asleep. Um, and then the band Quill went on at a quarter after noon. Um, um, I I don't know. I, I'm sure you don't. They well, did. They didn't have the set list posted. Right. That and 46 years doesn't make my memory any better because right. obviously, uh, as a teenager, that makes me uh, in the mid 60s, which I am. Even though the concert was in the late 60s, now I'm in my mid 60s. Sure. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. When did you did you uh, were you on time for the show? Did you make it for Richie Haven's opener? I I did because the Richie Haven's opener was delayed because of the logistical problems of trying to funnel in several hundred thousand people into a couple of fence openings. Uh, So so they did. And as I recall, um, although I had my tickets, they weren't taking tickets. I don't believe they were checking you for anything, you know, alcohol, um, anything. They, they were just trying to figure out how to handle the crowd, um, which uh, I'm not sure when they first realized how many people this would be if they were getting information from uh, the, the state police, uh, because certainly there were traffic problems. But I got in Friday afternoon I managed to get a good parking space, and when I walked into the venue, uh, I was uh, overwhelmed by the size of the facility. It was a natural ravine, a natural bowl, and it was huge, and I remember also how big the stage seemed, and, and the speakers seemed tremendous, but then when I started walking to a place where we could sit down because I was with another woman. And uh, uh, if you picture the stage um, as home plate on a baseball field, I was kind of in right center field. So a reasonable view, but I certainly couldn't pick out any details because I didn't want to be where the crowd was uh, shoulder to shoulder. Sure, sure. Um, So then then you, by the time you got there, the 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 craziness in a way had already started as in the number of people who were already there yes but by the time i got to woodstock we weren't probably yet half a million strong (laughs) but uh um there there were just 
watching the people come in, uh, I think be, because of the vantage point of this um, theater type thing where you, you could see down because the people were coming in at the stage level. So you could just watch it all happen. Um, so they were kind of it, filling from home plate and going out into the outfield as far as they could. Yeah, you 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 could sit wherever you wanted. There was, sure. Once you got in, there was nobody to guide you. Sure. You, you just uh, found a place, uh, put your sleeping bag down. And uh, I, I think the overwhelming majority of the people were um, surprised or shocked by the number of people because I would say back then, uh, listening to rock music, having long hair was somewhat non-mainstream, there's no doubt. And so um, when you see that many people who seem to have a similar interest, it mainstreams you. You feel more comfortable. Sure. You don't feel like somebody is uh, looking at you. Right. All, so, all the freaks are in one place. Yes. Yes. And uh, um, it was very disorderly, but very peaceful. Uh -huh. And if you look at any pictures, um, there, there is absolutely no commercialism. Mm -hmm. uh, even the printed T-shirt hadn't been invented yet. So if you look by today's standards, um, it, w it would appear that people were going to some kind of uh, informal corporate event uh, other than the fact they had uh, long scraggly hair, uh, many of the people. But, uh, um, uh, there was no commercialism. There was nothing you could buy. There was no uh, banner that said, you know, sponsored by Bank of America or Pepsi or whoever, uh, they missed the opportunity because they too did not realize uh, that there were many people who were into, into this. I would imagine uh, there were very few FM stations throughout the country that, uh, that played rock music. And I was just going to a concert. Uh, I had heard about this concert um, at the end of my freshman year at CW Post College, and I wrote away for tickets because Ticketmaster hadn't been invented yet, and the internet wasn't even a thought. In People anyone. survived without the internet? Yes. How did and, they do that? Um, I don't know, because we didn't bring cell phones sure, either. Sure, sure. So um, that's why, relatively speaking, there are probably very few pictures of it because of the several hundred thousand people there nobody had a cell phone yeah uh, how did how did you find out about woodstock i'm guessing either somebody told me or i read about it in a newspaper ad mm -hmm. because that was the only way <clears throat> excuse me to get publicity so i wrote away for tickets which means you put a check in an envelope you send it to a, an address and then um, sometime a week or two later in the mail, tickets arrive. So that, that was the procedure. And when my tickets arrived, I was surprised to see on the back of them uh, where it gives a, a little bit of legal ease. And I, I bought the three-day pass. For, for how, much? how much? How much was, how much did it cost if you actually wanted to go to Woodstock? Well, if you were going to that concert where you would see the Who, Sly and the Family Stone, Jimi Hendrix, um, uh, Arlo Guthrie, Joan Baez, the Grateful Dead, 
Janis Joplin. One or Janis, two big names, just yeah, a couple Jeff of them. Airplane and, and a few that I'm sure I've left out. You could buy a daily ticket and you if it's, and th- each daily ticket cost X amount. But when you bought the three together, you got a discount. Sure. The daily ticket, as I recall, as I know, was six dollars. Oh, such a US. ripoff. And and, it, and then the three-day combined price, you got a discount. It was $15. So you paid $15 to go to Woodstock. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And, and, and these days, most people can't even buy a T-shirt at a concert for $15. Right. And you couldn't buy a T-shirt at that concert for $15 either because the, nobody was selling T-shirts. Right. They, they hadn't figured out yet, oh, my gosh, there is so much money to be made here. Right. Right. Uh, That was the last time, I think, that uh, uh, you could go to a non-commercial large um, uh, venue concert Mm -hmm. without, uh, um, again, non-commercial. Sure, sure. Uh, So so I get my tickets in the mail, uh, of which, by the way, I was uh, um, lucky enough I still have them. I got them framed in a picture frame so that's why i have them along with the program uh-huh. so on the back of one of the tickets where they have the legal disclaimers uh which obviously is a joke back then um it is stamped wall kill which is the name of a town up there because where the venue was supposed to be originally woodstock the good uh um, townspeople decided they didn't want it because earlier that summer at the Newport Folk Festival, yep. um, people got rowdy, it seemed. Uh, th- there were some incidents, uh, nothing by today's standards of major proportions. People got rowdy, and it was starting to attract younger people. So the good folks at uh, Woodstock said, not here. And yet they had all of these items printed. They were all set to go. And so then they found that Wallkill, New York, which was close to Woodstock, relatively speaking, yep. they said, okay, let's build it there. And so they found a facility and they were doing their thing. And then I'm guessing about two weeks before the show, somewhere around August 1st, uh, the city fathers, as they were known back then, at Wallkill said, mm-hmm. uh, hell no, don't come here. We're not going to do it. They canceled. So they were looking for a place to hold it. And from what I have learned, um, it was a very difficult summer if you were in the dairy cow business. Okay. So there, and <laughs> so this man who had a, uh, a, by its standards of the time, mm-hmm. a large uh, dairy farm uh, found out that um, he could make some money to recoup his losses because of the tough summer in the milking business mm-hmm. by renting out his farm. So uh, less than two weeks before, they moved the venue again, and I'm not sure how I found out that it yeah, was Yeah, that, that's what I was wondering because they can't exactly tweet it out or anything or email no. you. No, nor did they have the money to advertise sure, it sure. on the four channels of television that existed back then. Sure. Um, so I'm not sure if, if uh, how I found out because, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, so it, it was um, uh, in a in out in the middle of nowhere um, in White Lake, New York, 
which is in Sullivan County, where most of these towns were. And so they start building this venue while they didn't have much time. And I knew a man who was one of the builders and they were building it not only the night before, but the day of, and they still didn't quite get it sure, finished. Sure. Um, and, and so it just happened there on Max Yasger's farm. Um, and so the, the fencing was very insecure. And so you just kind of, uh, someone had ripped down, say, a piece of fencing and, and you would just walk in because when they saw they were so overwhelmed by people coming, um, they decided they had, they had basically had one of two choices. Show me your ticket. And if you don't have one, you're not allowed in, uh, which would have made for a much smaller show, but what are they going to do with several hundred thousand people milling around in the middle of nowhere? Sure. Uh, so they made uh, what I thought was a great decision. They just, if you came, you entered. You were allowed in, so the place really started filling up. Uh, but unbeknownst to me, the traffic jams coming in, uh -huh. uh, because people from all over the country found out about this somehow, the traffic jams coming in, in uh, were uh, over 20 miles long. So there are many people who've never made it to the venue. Sure, they sure. Had festival. And, and the, um, one of the reasons many people knew about this is they may have followed a particular band like um, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash or 10 years after or whomever. And maybe they found out from following that band that uh, they were going to be at Woodstock. And so word just somehow got around. Um, and and, uh, and so when you were uh, driving up, was, was there already a traffic jam on the way? Or, you know, you said you actually managed a parking spot. What was, what was kind of the scene when you were driving up and actually getting up to the farm? Um, I, I got up there early. I, I had um, uh, worked that summer, and I gave my employer plenty of notice that uh, the day or two days before uh, I was uh, um, leaving the job and I was going to go back to school, but I was going to take two weeks vacation, of which the first part was going to Woodstock. Sure. My parents also knew I was going, um, and they were okay with it, but they didn't realize what was going on until uh, probably the next day when they saw the newspaper, because uh -huh. that's how people got their news. And there was a picture and a story in the New York Times. Um but so you, I drove up there and, and traffic kept increasing and, and it was from, uh, shall we say, a very main modern road known as 17K. The, 17K. Uh, yeah, it was called the Quick Way. I was on uh, it the other week. A four-lane divided highway, two lanes in each direction with a huge median in the center. Uh -huh. And so you get off at the exit and it's real crowded and, and you go for a few miles and it's really going slow, but I, I got there. I was able to park and just people streaming in. I'm guessing I got there maybe two in the afternoon. Two in the afternoon so, on Friday. On Friday. Yeah. And there were, was already a large crowd, but um, uh, people kept coming all day Friday and all day Saturday. And I didn't realize how um, how difficult it was to get there until when I leave, left, going back down 17K, the quick way, I've seen something that I saw something that was so out of context, it, it was um, hard to believe. Mm -hmm. But the median for about 10 miles heading 
out of uh, the mountains towards New York City for about 10 miles. Um, it was packed with people who were camping there for the weekend who never made it to Woodstock at all. And that's kind of when I realized, wow, this must have been real hard to get into, into uh -huh. um, the logistics if you, if you didn't get there kind of early or if you didn't feel like walking the last 10 miles or 15 miles. But um, take whatever road you can think of, busy road, uh, the, you know, anything with a median in it and imagine coming up upon all of a sudden tents in the middle uh -huh. for uh, 10 miles. So was traffic getting out easier? Like had they, had they cleared yeah. the road enough or, or it was just that nobody was trying to go South. Everyone was trying to go North. So it didn't really matter. No, um, getting out was easier because, uh, coming in, everyone had a specific time, meaning everyone wanted uh -huh. to be there at the beginning or Saturday, but because of the, um, uh, length of the show, and difficult conditions, meaning uh, there was no food, but, you know, I knew I wasn't going to starve to death. Uh -huh. uh, there was no water. The the plastic bottle of water hadn't been invented yet. Sure. Um, I, you know, that's not true. Meaning it's true the plastic bottle of water hadn't been invented yet. It, it wasn't ubiquitous. Say, right. To say there was no – no, no. No, it, plastic water hadn't been invented, but to say there was no water would be untrue. They ran some garden hoses, mm -hmm. and there were long lines to get a sip of water. Um, bathroom facilities were all portageons, and uh, everybody was polite, but uh, they too were minimal. Uh -huh. So it kind of wore you down, and it was hot, and then there were thunderstorms, so it was hot and muddy. Um, yeah. So many people, after a while, said, you know what? This is great. I've had enough. I, I know, uh, for example, that Hendrix was closing the show. But, you know, uh, it's okay. I don't need to be a star watcher. I enjoy sure. Hendrix's music. Um, people were more interested uh, in getting on with their lives than being able to say, hey, I saw whoever. So if you look at either photographs or video of the last day of the concert, mm -hmm. I would guess 80 to 90% of the people had left uh -huh. uh, because it was difficult. It was not being disrespectful to Hendrix. Everyone knew he was great, uh, but you're just tired. Right, and right. And, and, you know, after it looks like from, from what I've read that at about 3.30 in the morning on that morning after Joe Cocker played, that huge thunderstorm came through and lasted about four hours. Uh, yeah, it, it, it it was difficult because there was thunder, lightning, uh, typical summer weather in the in the Northeast. Sure, you know, hot, humid, uh, and you're in the same clothes for several days that that have gotten um, drenched from the rain, and then you got sweaty, then you got drenched again, uh, mud sometimes up to your ankles, uh, no food. So it, it was tough, but there was a natural vibe. Uh, there was such a positive attitude. Um, everybody was helping everybody who needed help. So for example, um, if you got to the bathroom lines and you really had to go, you just said, Hey, I really got to go. And you got to the front of the line. Nobody hassled you. Nobody gave you dirty looks. If you really needed water, you, you got to the front of the line. Mm -hmm. And if not, you waited and had a few sips of water and passed it on. I have no idea what the people who were running the show were thinking other than let's try and 
keep everybody as happy and as comfortable as possible. And and with the lineup they had, that was uh, that was pretty easy to do. Um, keep people happy with great music. Uh, so you know, obviously you're there a few days. We'll get to the actual lineup in a bit. One would assume you needed to sleep now and again as well. Yes, uh, they they also because of the size of the crowd. Um, they decided to run the music continuously. Uh-huh. Um, and unlike today, when, say, a performer might play a 90-minute set and you can set your watch by it, um, there were, that didn't exist then either. So they played for a while, and it also uh, created this effect among the performers. First of all, I don't think any of them had pay, played in front of a crowd like this before. I don't know if anybody had ever played in a crowd that big before. Yeah. You know, yes. ro- a rock and roll style band. So so the ante got raised. Uh, a group would put on an incredible show, and the next group on would see that, and they would somehow get the adrenaline going and draw off the crowd. Um, and they, too, too there, there was one A-plus, 10-plus show after another. It was amazing. It just was and the sound system was excellent um <laughs> it, it it really was um um so you so, slept so you eventually had to choose a time to sleep I, I know one of them so uh you you said you slept through the grateful dead's performance yes i mean uh, um sooner or later you you, you i didn't choose to sleep i kind of just fell asleep i passed out whatever uh-huh. you call it um and i slept through the grateful dead okay um the good news is I had many chances to see them after that. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so different people slept because, uh, you know, it, the concert's on at, uh, say, you know, it, it's dark uh, at that time of year from about nine in the evening to probably about five, six in the morning. And so it's dark. They didn't have stadium lighting for the crowd, thankfully. And so if you had to get up, there were two problems. One, you wanted to make sure you didn't trip over people. But the other problem, because although you may have had a ticket or not, it didn't have a seat number. Sometimes it took me a long time to find where I had been sitting with this woman I went there with, uh, Helen Doretsky. Just just getting uh, through the masses of people. Well, just remembering where you were, because it's dark. You kind of know sort of where you might have been, but there there were no markers whatsoever. It's a, it's a giant field at an mm-hmm. angle. Uh-huh. So uh, getting lost was uh, uh, part of, uh, of the thought process. Well, gee, do I have to go to the bathroom, or am I going to find my way back? And always bathroom one out sooner or later. Exactly. Um, uh, so, so sleeping, um, you know, you, you would be there at, uh, say, uh, noon, and, you know, you might be listening to whatever great group, and uh, you look around, and there's some people asleep, because uh, they had been up all night and the day before, and who knows how long, mm-hmm. so, so you, you had to get some sleep. Sure. So you slept through the Grateful Dead, which, you know, again, forgivable, forgivable. Um, You saw a lot of music, you know, for for people who possibly don't know, you know, you mentioned a lot of them. Country Joe McDonald, obviously Santana had a blistering set that uh, introduced a lot of the world to them. Uh, Jefferson Airplane had a great set, Mountain. Um, For your money, who was the best act you saw? At this buffet of gourmet uh, music. It was very 
uh, hard to choose. But on the other hand, for me, as you know, just a personal uh, opinion, it was easy to choose. Uh, by far, Sly and the Family Stone, uh-huh. they just rock. They played continuously. They had the entire, not the entire, but it seemed like the entire crowd up on their feet, clapping their hands, dancing, singing with them, just uh, uh, amazing set, an amazing set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and according uh, according to the uh, official site, they actually took the stage at 3.30 in the morning. So... Um, Interesting time to have a band that high energy to hop out there. Yeah, well, I um, it it took a while. Um, it probably took them, I'm guessing, somewhere between 20 minutes and an hour to change sets because mm-hmm. each band had its own equipment. Some had sure, uh, and and they also had a few technical issues just trying to make the sound uh, really great, and it was so. Yeah, I guess Sly came on at three in the morning. I don't know. All I remember is like. Wow, these guys just rocked the whole place, and and it was in a very close second, maybe the Who. They uh-huh. they, they were amazing, and at one point, um, they played their latest album in its entirety, a double album, which was called Tommy the Rock Opera. So they did it start to finish. It was great. They they really put on a great show and remember this also it was the music there were zero none no special effects if you didn't like the music you weren't going to have a good time so you know th- there was no big screen anything no fireworks going off no uh, large inflatable whatever um, it was just the music and people sat and listened to the music mm-hmm. and then when the music was over there was wild applause. So people didn't interrupt the musicians because everyone wanted to hear what they were performing. When, when it comes to special effects, though, there there is an infamous moment that I don't think a lot of people knows. No, a lot of people know. Some great degree I have there. Uh, goes back to Woodstock, and that was the uh, the match lighting. That was that was something that began at Woodstock, I believe. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it began. It was the first time I had seen it, and I had been to a fair amount of concerts. So. A group, and I do not remember which, I think it may have been Country Joe, or it may have been Country Joe and the Fish, but I could be wrong. I think it was uh, Melanie, actually, if my memory, and I'm, I'm totally guessing, I, if my memory serves me right. Anyway. Anyway, uh, back then, um, the cigarette lighter was not real popular, it was not ubiquitous. However, um, Due to various regions, reasons, most of which had nothing to do with smoking cigarettes, um, matches were the way to go, paper match books. So I believe it was late evening. It wasn't quite dark, but it may have been. Uh, a performer, Melanie, gets on stage and says, I'd like everyone to uh, take out a match and light it. And when several hundred thousand people light a match it's like this dome of glow this beautiful glow it 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 was just gorgeous and by the way uh i was probably in the small minority there uh the only high i got was on the music and maybe a contact high Uh so i i've got very clear memory of this and uh so you you lit a match 
and everybody else did, not everyone. Um, and it just uh, was this fantastic special effect, but it was a real special effect. So it was the uh, uh, first time I had ever seen that, and uh, uh, it, it was just a very uh, calming, also peaceful event. Because the the um, as an aside, the concert was set up that the first day or first evening Friday would be all folk music, because folk music was extremely popular. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they had people like um, um, Arlo Guthrie, uh, Joan Baez, and I believe Richie Havens opened the show. Yes, and he did. He, and he just uh, set a very high standard. Uh, and then the second and third day was uh, rock and roll, and it certainly uh, rocked. Yeah. There's no, no doubt. Um, also, in, in terms of great acts, and many of these acts I hadn't heard of. So this group comes on and just um, was certainly, in my mind, one of the top five acts, in, in, if not one of the top three acts. I had not seen them or heard of them. And yet, right afterwards, I made sure I did. And that was Santana. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, I guess they were popular on the West Coast, but they were a live band. And by that, I mean um, they were great, but they, nobody wanted to uh, produce a record for them because um, there were very few record companies, record labels. Uh, the small label might have been regional, but uh, Santana's first album, I believe, came out uh four months or so after Woodstock yeah. and they put on a show that was amazing, just amazing. And, and it was a different kind of music, uh, within this large lineup. They were the only, uh, shall we call it Latin rhythm rock group. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, I, I'd, I'd say there were a half a million jaws on the ground, you know, just, uh, jaw dropping, uh, group. They they were great. These were uh, again. So many of the musicians were teenagers also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they were just super, and they went on to great fame. And I saw them in very small venues. I saw them at the Fillmore East, which probably held, I'm guessing, a thousand people. Uh-huh. Uh, and they put on a great show there as well. Excellent. Uh, so, you know, with with what you're describing, you know, especially with with the crowd. Even when things got to kind of their the the their largest numbers wise, what was what was the vibe? You know, you described everybody kind of like, oh, you really need to take a leak. Sure, go to the front of the line. The people who were actually sitting in the bowl, if you will, what what was the what was the vibe like throughout? The, you know, did it change as things got bigger? Um, it got bigger so quickly. I, I think um, at daybreak on Saturday morning, and I, I believe it was. Um, Jefferson Airplane, who played at daybreak Saturday morning, um, it, it uh, w- which must have been unusual for some of these musicians. I mean, it's dawn most of the time. You know, um, these musicians didn't know there were two seven o'clock. Sure, right, day. right, right. Um, uh, it, it was dawn, but but yes, um, it was just such a friendly, positive vibe, and and realizing there are so many people like this. If if uh, back then your, your specialty was uh, the history of 
Antarctic exploration and you go to a show at a museum and 200 other people there and you're surprised that anyone else uh, knows it or cares about Antarctic exploration, you feel real good. You feel mainstream. Here, you felt so mainstream and so good because uh, estimates range from about 300,000 to about 700,000. So yeah. let's, let's you know take the uh, middle and say it. So a half a million people similar to you are there just to enjoy themselves, listen to music, not be hassled by people um, who uh, presume, and most of the time they were right, because you had long hair, you were against the Vietnam War, because that was very big at that time, or um, because you had long hair, you were somehow uh, unclean. So you were just in a very comfortable, secure place, and it was very comfortable and secure uh, aside from the fact that now we have concert T-shirts and, you know, everything is sponsored and very expensive and all that. After Woodstock, what what changes in culture did you see that you think are a direct result of Woodstock? Um, I, I really believe that there was a 180 degree change in the corporate community. Um, people uh, who were into marketing and sales said, wait a minute. So we have a half a million people there. Somebody had to have some money in their pocket and we didn't get any. We didn't uh, offer them anything to buy, to spend their money on. We didn't uh, have a plane fly by that said Budweiser beer. Um, there was no ATM machine uh, because the ATM machine hadn't been invented yet or the oh. AT machine because the M stands for machine. Um <laughs> The uh, I, I think that was the real difference that they, they realized they corporate America, that there was a demographic that they weren't uh, looking at at all. So they looked at it real quickly and things changed dramatically. And then uh, um, in an effort to, I would say, extract more money, they decided that uh, it cost a certain amount per hour to uh, stage a show to have a performance. Mm -hmm. So let's cut down on the number of hours. So over the years uh, where a group would just um, play until they were done, uh, then the uh, contracts and the unions got involved. And so sets were limited to a certain amount of time. So after Woodstock, and this is, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Has kind of every concert since been a bit of a letdown because, you know, Woodstock was as big as it was? Um, yes, but mostly no, because um, th there was no three-day event that I'm aware of since then. Um, however, individual performances uh, that I have been to have been phenomenal, and, and it's been more... Um, global, shall we say, entertainment, going to more of your senses. There's a lot more visual. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I've been to Paul Simon concerts uh, that just uh, were fantastic. I've been to Bette Midler shows that were amazing. The Rolling Stones never disappoint. And again, there's a lot to see. It's not just the music uh, at these shows. Uh, so I've never been to anything like Woodstock again, uh, but I've been to great shows that I thoroughly enjoyed. So um, if I went with the attitude, I'm going to see how this compares, I would be disappointed. Instead, I let it as a standalone event. And I've been to incredible shows. And I've been to somewhere I said, you know what, 
it must be me or maybe it's the musicians, but uh, this isn't doing it for me. But I would urge everybody to see live performances, no matter what the genre, because if the genre exists, that means there's great music, whether it's opera, rap, jazz, country or rock and roll. Uh, go out, go see a live show and you don't have to see a uh, nationally known artist because that nationally known artist 100% of the time started out doing very small venues. Thanks, Dad. Yay. So many great stories to be had there and uh, I'm going to have to bring him back later to talk about some other amazing shows he saw. Tons of stuff at the Fillmore East and just growing up in New York City in the 60s, you had a really cool music scene. So we'll definitely have him back. Now, before we wrap it up, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel homework. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign a single album that you should listen to from beginning to end without any interruptions or distractions. I do this because I firmly believe that most people have relegated music to a background thing. You're at work, you're driving, whatever, and this is about consciously enjoying music again. So this week's Ear Fuel assignment is Jimi Hendrix's Live at Woodstock album, since, you know, my dad left before Jimi played, and because it's face-meltingly fantastic, really. Jimi was uh, the last act to play Woodstock, but more importantly, this was more than an experiment in terms of the lineup. You see, the Jimi Hendrix experience, who did, you know, all the big records, Are You Experienced, Electric Ladyland, Axis Bold as Love, you know, all the just... Oh, such great records. We'll get to those eventually. Don't worry. Now, they had broken up just a few months earlier, and this band, which Jimmy refers to as Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, or for short, nothing but a band of gypsies. He would eventually go to Band of Gypsies. We'll get to that also later. They had only rehearsed together for about 10 days before the show. He had kind of thrown this group together. He was also supposed to go on around midnight on Sunday, but he felt that they might have a better chance of, you know, not sucking if they waited until the suns came up. So they ended up going on around eight in the morning. And as my dad said, uh, if we call it half a million people were at Woodstock, it's estimated that only about 30,000 people were left when Hendrix played. Now, that is that is no small number, mind you, but comparatively, you know, it's a pretty small show. Anyway, that being said. Hendrix absolutely slays this show. His renditions of Red House and Fire songs, everybody knows well, are blistering. But for me, it's the version of Isabella he lays down here that is by far the best. Now, I love that song to begin with. Isabella is one of my all-time favorite Hendrix tracks. It might be. It might be my favorite Hendrix track. I'm going to have to think about that. This version, by far the best. You also have on this album his iconic rendition of the Star Spangled Banner and one of the best live takes of Voodoo Child's Slight Return. This is just one of those moments in history that everyone needs to know. So make sure you go check out Hendrix Live at Woodstock this week. There's a number of versions out there. All of them are good. Thanks for joining me. As always, you can find me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at the Daily Guru. And hey, if you dig what we do here, go and tell a friend. That's your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy. <laughs>